Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. University of Melbourne Laureate Professor Peter Doherty is the patron and namesake of the Doherty Institute and has been involved in research on infection and immunity for 50 years. He shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1996 with Swiss colleague Rolf Zinkenagel for their discovery of how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. He was Australian of the Year in 1997 and has since been commuting between St Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis and the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne. He often devotes his time to delivering public lectures, writing articles for newspapers and magazines, and participating in chats like the one you're about to hear. Dr Andy Horvath sat down for a Zoom chat with Professor Peter Doherty to talk about viruses, COVID-19, infections, treatments, antiviral drugs and vaccines. So Peter, tell us what exactly is a virus? It lives inside cells, that's what I do know, and that infects cells in animals. But what exactly is it? Well, a, a virus is basically some genetic information. It could be DNA, the nucleic acid information that we use, or it could be RNA and uh, no other uh, cellular organisms, even bacteria, use RNA as their, their information system. What they are is uh, a bit of that genetic information wrapped in some protein and some fat or lipid to protect it that uh, is out there and um, gets into our cells and to some extent takes over the machinery of our cells to turn, say, a cell in our respiratory tract, our throat, our, our breathing apparatus into a factory that will produce more virus particles. It can't reproduce on its own. It has no capacity to move around on its own. It's pretty inert until it gets into our cells. So how does it get about? I mean, how come it stays on surfaces that we touch? Doesn't it dry up? The way it gets about, I mean, this particular virus, the SARS coronavirus 2 gets around by um, being protected to some extent by mucus, by the stuff that we cough up. So the virus particles are surrounded with this. That will protect it for a time. And if, for instance, someone who coughs and uh, they've got this stuff, mucus on their hand, uh, touches a door handle or a uh, elevator button, it can survive there maybe, maybe three days or more. But it's just surviving passively. Some viruses survive a lot, lot better than that. I mean, influenza virus will survive, for instance, in fresh water very well and, uh, and so forth. It's not a particularly tough virus, but it can survive for a time. So uh, otherwise, it survives in us or whatever species is transmitting it. And that's why it has to transmit, because if it doesn't transmit to other individuals and multiply in other individuals, once a person becomes immune, they'll stop making new virus and uh, it will die out. So the strategy of this virus is to keep transmitting to more and more people and uh, just keep itself going. So it's all that invisible 
mucus that we sneeze out or even just breathe out as we're talking. In fact, you can probably even see the speckles on our own computer screens to realise how much droplets carry to a surface. So where do these viruses come from? We've heard of things like bird flu, uh, which comes from birds, obviously, and swine flu into the mammalian sector. And I I guess, could we call COVID-19 a bat flu? Because um, there seems to be some suggestion it's come from bats. So how does this all progress? Well, it's highly likely it's come from bats. Uh, There have been Chinese scientists studying these viruses in bats very intensively. And they've got a whole lot of viruses like this. So it's almost certainly it's come from a bat. What's not so clear is how it got into us. Uh, The initial thinking was that um, the bat infected an animal that ended up in one of these wet markets in in Wuhan. uh, And the, the animal suggested was a pangolin. And then that transmitted to us by people coming into the wet market and being exposed. A lot of doubt has been thrown on that. It's likely, I think, it's gone through another species. Uh, I noticed one of the European virologists was suggesting he'd look very hard in raccoon dogs in China if he had the opportunity to be there and had the funding to do it. We also know that it infects mink. That seems pretty unlikely as a transmission mechanism because I don't know if there's a lot of mink in that part of the world. And uh, maybe it can infect cats a bit too. So it's almost certainly what happens with these viruses. They go from bats to another species to us. So the original SARS virus we do know went from bats to a little animal called the civet cat, which was sold in live markets in China then jumped into us. But there's another one, the Middle Eastern respiratory syncytial virus, same thing, bats. But we think it went into camels and then went from camels to us. So so one of the bits of advice there is never kiss a camel. How often does a virus like, say, the influenza virus mutate? We have a vaccine for that every year. In fact, I just got my flu shot today. Does the the COVID-19 and these other SARS-related viruses also mutate? The influenza virus, like the, the COVID-19 virus, is a, an RNA virus. It's about a third the size of the SARS-CoronA-2, which is the COVID-19 cause. Influenza viruses mutate at a very high rate all the time. We had a young person who was persistently infected with flu. The person in question had a defective immune system, so they had a persistent influenza virus infection. They were throwing off enormous numbers of mutants. That's what influenza does. It throws off enormous numbers of mutants, but most of them would be mutants that would compromise fitness. That is, they would not uh, favour better growth by the virus, or they would be mutants that are just irrelevant and uh, might just get carried along. And it's only every year or so that we see a new variant selected of the enormous numbers of mutations that are out there. Now, the coronavirus, on the other hand, is much bigger. It does have a protein that's involved in what we call proofreading. So though it does have mutations, and you can follow some of the lineages of these viruses by following these mutations, it's regarded as a virus that has a pretty high fidelity. That is, in actual fact, though it may carry little mutations with it, it doesn't really change much what the virus does, how it grows, or or uh, even what the specificity of it is. So flu and the human immunodeficiency viruses are really high mutation viruses. The COVID uh, viruses are not. 
Let's talk about infection rates and fatality rates, because some viruses are highly infectious and some viruses have fatality rates that are high and some are low. So let's do a little bit of comparative virology. Well, if we just look at the, uh, the coronaviruses that we think have come across from bats, the first one, uh, the uh, SARS virus, killed about 10% of the people it infected. It was fairly infectious, but it didn't ever really get out of Asia except to Toronto. We had a few people that we call super spreaders who seemed to infect a lot of other people. And one of those super spreaders went to Toronto, but it never went further than Toronto. The Middle Eastern virus is more, more lethal than the original SARS. It kills about 30% of the people that it infects. It doesn't look to be as infectious, but it's hung around for longer. And for instance, it first emerged about 2012, and uh, we were still getting cases last year, and I expect probably this year as well. It went from the Middle East to Asia, but I don't think it went to any Western countries. Whereas this one, the SARS coronavirus 2, is highly infectious. It's at least as infectious as influenza. We don't know exactly what percentage of people it's killing because we're still unclear about the background infection rates. Most of us think it's somewhere around 1% to 1.5% of people, but uh, we're not sure of that. It could be lower, it could be higher. People seem to respond to the virus in different ways. Why is there such a variation in people's immune responses? There's always a difference in people's immune responses to viruses, and uh, that's true of influenza as well. Basically, the main problem with this one, we think, is that older people are not responding particularly well to it, or some older people aren't. And of course, that variation in how well you respond becomes greater as you get older, because what happens is we lose what's called the naive immune response, the capacity to respond to something new. And that varies a lot between people as they get older. And so uh, that may be, that we think is the main reason why older people are so much more susceptible. But we do know that uh, a lot of young people particularly may have totally inapparent infection. We don't know much about how good their immune response is. Uh, we do know that a lot of um, uh, younger people uh, and older people too, who've made quite strong responses to this and been been sick, maybe not in hospital, but uh, also in hospital. Uh, we know that some of the older people have made very strong immune responses and uh, you can make a very, what looks like a really pretty normal immune response, though uh, we're still studying that. And, and we now can study that in enormous detail with modern technology, uh, much more so than say it was available back when SARS, the original one came along in 2002. From what I've seen so far of the detailed studies, and they're very limited, uh, this virus is making a fairly normal immune response. And I'd expect that uh, people uh, would be uh, protected at least for a year against being reinfected. Or if they did get a second infection, it'd be very, very mild and you wouldn't notice it. Uh, but we're still not clear about that either. And when you think about it, we've only known about this virus for a few months. So there's still an enormous amount of work to understand what the infection's actually like. For people who do have an infection, is there immune response that actually jeopardises their life, almost an overreaction to the virus? Can you give us a little insight into what's going on there? 
Well, again, our understanding of this is imperfect. But what we do know is that particularly in some older people who maybe are not really getting rid of the virus due to their normal immune response or are getting rid of it very late, we can get what's called cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm is actually a function of a different part of the immune system, not the part of the immune system we call the adaptive immune system, which is what we stimulate when we make a vaccine, but a part of the immune system we call the innate immune system. This is an early response mechanism in the main that's uh, designed to put a lot of rather toxic chemicals in some senses out there to try and stop an invading bacterium particularly, but also a virus. And we think what might be happening, and this is kind of just theoretical really because we don't have proof of it, but it, it makes sense in this from what we know about very severe influenza infections, is that people who don't clear the infection very late when things are kind of failing, this innate immune system turns on very strongly to try and do the job, but it can't do it. And in the process of doing turning on like that, a lot of these toxic molecules will, for instance, cause vascular leakage and edema of the lung and so forth. And, and we think that might be part of it because we know there seems to be reasonably good evidence, though we haven't seen great trial data yet. It's, so it's kind of anecdotal that treating with blocking a molecule called interleukin-6, which is one of these innate immune molecules, seems to help people late in the disease. So that may be one way of saving a lot of lives if that's, uh, if that's indeed the case. The blocking molecules for interleukin-6 uh, are in use clinically. They're used with rheumatoid arthritis patients. So uh, getting them into people is no great problem uh, in, in some sort of severe clinical context. You can always get compassionate approval to do that. You don't need a whole lot of trials. But we do need a trial to show that it actually works properly. So let's talk about antivirals and vaccines. Let's distinguish between the two. Well, let's start with antivirals because there's no vaccine for HIV AIDS, but it is treated with antivirals. So how do they work? Well, that's true. There is no vaccine for HIV AIDS, and I'm personally quite dubious we'll ever have one, though other people have still got some hopes. Uh, the reason for that is the virus changes so much, but also because the virus causes a persistent infection and copies back into the genome, which this virus doesn't do and, and flu doesn't do, for instance. So what an antiviral is, is a drug. Now, vaccine is something that you give to an individual and they make an immune response. And then that immune response can be there for life. I mean, we know that uh, some immune responses will last as long as 50 years after the initial infection or exposure or whatever. So it, it's a very, very long-term thing. A drug, on the other hand, is a treatment that you give and it's a chemical or something else that you bring in from outside and it will wash out of the system, of course, rapidly or slowly. And so drugs have worked great for HIV. And what's worked is what we call designer drugs. And what happens here is that people we used to call X-ray crystallographers, we now call them structural biologists, who uh, analyze the structure of proteins. And that's what the, the, the vulnerable uh, entity is on the surface of the coronavirus or any virus is a protein, usually a protein that binds to the receptor that gets into the cell or something like that. And so what they do is they generate a three-dimensional structure of that protein by bombarding it with energy in an in a, a X-ray initially. Now they use the synchrotron, the, 
the big gadget we've got out at Monash University, and they determine what that protein looks like in its three-dimensional structure, and then they design a chemical which will fit into what they think is the really important part of that structure for binding to the cell, for instance. And that would be a blocker, and that's an effective drug. So various types of those drugs were made for HIV, and now everybody who's got HIV, if they're fortunate enough to be in a reasonably wealthy country, takes a cocktail of several of these every day, I think it is, or maybe it's less frequently now, uh, to stop the, keep the virus under control. So if we had a drug, these antiviral drugs against the coronavirus, this coronavirus, then we could treat people. And it's very likely, I think, that if we had that drug and we treated people very early, we might prevent most of the severe disease even developing. If we could do that, for instance, once you can treat a disease, uh, you don't need to lock down the whole of society. You just treat it like any other disease. So if we can get to drug treatments, then the problem in the, in the sort of sense we're dealing with it now is essentially over. We just treat it like any other disease. And if we can cure it, then that's great. But the other thing you can do with drugs is give them as a preventive, what we call a prophylaxis. And what happens in HIV is there are still some people who indulge in high-risk behaviour. Well, telling them not to do that doesn't work. So what they can do is take a drug called Truvada, which has two of these anti-HIV drugs that are used also for treatment. But instead of using them for treatment, they take them every day so that if they're putting themselves at risk, they just don't get infected. Now, we could do that, particularly with older people if we needed to, because it may be a problem to get older people particularly to make a decent immune response to any vaccine against this thing. So the way to protect them might be to use what we call in the AIDS world, PrEP. That is, you take a couple of these drugs in single pill each day and you don't get infected. And as most older people in their 70s, late 70s and 80s and so forth, for taking three or four tablets a day, adding another one won't make a whole lot of difference. And uh, it would get us out of this problem. And it's always possible. It's, also, it's, it's quite possible. We will get to good drugs. I mean, there are already some reports coming in through the literature. I know Mark von Itstein at uh, Griffith University in Queensland, the man who made the original Rolenza drug against flu, as something he thinks is promising. This will be happening all over the planet. I think it's very likely we'll get to good drugs even quicker than we'll get to a good vaccine. Right. So the antivirals are very important into managing uh, well-being in the population. Let's talk about the vaccines then as well. The vaccines are no doubt being worked on around the world. I mean, once the antivirals are there, that'll be great. But the vaccines is something that is, I guess, long-term future. Tell us about those because that's a whole different ball game in terms of our immune system. It's not like the drug, as you described, that sort of latches onto a protein, onto the virus and sort of locks it and disables it. The vaccines work in a different way. Well, the vaccines, we give a vaccine and the body responds to it. In the old days, vaccines often were sort of just the virus itself that had been killed in some way. That's the basis of, this, of the uh, polio vaccine, for instance. People grew up the polio virus, then they killed it. Then they gave it to people and they responded to it. So it's a safe form of mimicking aspects of the infection. A lot of modern vaccines just take a little bit of the virus and give that in some way. And uh, you, you might have heard of virus-like particles. 
Uh, these are non-infectious particles of the virus. Uh, that's the vaccine that's used to um, prevent human papillomavirus infection that causes cervical cancer in women. And it's given to girls and they make an immune response and to boys too uh, because of the transmission aspects. And they make an immune response. And then, of course, if the virus comes in, the antibodies that are already there will grab hold of the virus and they'll block it. And that's the end of it. So vaccines are what we make a response to. But that's why, of course, there are effects like some people don't have a good functioning immune system. So whereas a drug will work pretty much the same in everybody, a vaccine will show quite a bit of variation. Now, uh, because you're going to give a vaccine to large numbers of completely normal people, they have to be completely safe. And so there have been a bit of few safety concerns due to some experimental work that was done with SARS about these vaccines. So we have to go a bit carefully. We have to uh, test them in large numbers of people and test them in, in people who are not likely to be badly affected if something goes a bit wrong. Uh, that process is beginning. Uh, the, one of the very first vaccines, it's a it's a vaccine that's been made by putting a little bit of the SARS coronavirus 2 spike protein, the key protein on the surface of the virus, into another virus called adenovirus. This is actually an adenovirus from a chimpanzee. These are viruses that cause common colds in us. Now, that virus was made at the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford. It's been tried in experimental animals. You have to do what's called preclinical testing. And it's been done in ferrets at our uh, CSIRO Geelong Laboratory, which used to be called the R Laboratory, which has a different name. Now, that the first shots of that vaccine have now gone into people's arms in Oxford and they'll do what's called a phase one safety trial to make sure that these people make antibodies and they don't get sick just from the vaccine. And then, of course, the, uh, the interesting part will be when they, they vaccinate larger numbers of people and let them mix in society where there's a lot of infection happening, which is still the case in Britain and I think will be the case for some time. Peter, has this particular incident with COVID brought together the scientists in a sort of universal way of collaboration? Is there danger of large pharma wanting to make profits from this? What's your perspective of the world of research against COVID? I think everybody just wants to get this problem solved and get society back to normal. And I think that's as true as true of big pharma as anybody else. I don't think anyone's trying to gouge large amounts of money out of this. We just want to get it behind us and get society back to normal functioning. In fact, uh, there was a, a drug that some people thought was promising. It doesn't look as though it is very promising, made by the American Gilead Company. And some of the activities of the Trump administration would have actually allowed that company to charge a lot of money for it. And the, the company completely rejected it. So I don't think you want to paint big pharma or or anybody wants to paint big pharma in an unfavourable light. I think they're, they're like everybody else. They're trying to solve this problem. I can tell you what's happened in our own institute. Everyone's working together across the planet. So we normally this would be a subject for immunologists and virologists, okay? But if you look at our institute, the bacteriologists have come into it. They're helping to develop tests. They're doing a lot of sequencing of the genome and all sorts of things. Everybody has come in on this. Uh, from across the planet and everybody's talking to each other, sharing reagents, sharing information and so forth. Uh, that's one of the reasons I, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we want to do everything, both, both at the level of the science, which of course works that way anyway, 
but also at the level of government policy to promote a general uh, global amity uh, uh, and, and not, uh, not try and play blame games or any other stupid games around this. We need to solve this problem. That's the only motivation at this stage. Uh, getting a solution, um, making sure people aren't dying and getting us out of this social uh, situation, which is so economically and in some ways psychologically damaging. So, Peter, what has the history of pandemics been able to teach us about how we can move forward? We've always thought, I mean, I wrote a little book about pandemics back in 2013 called Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's a kind of general interest book for the broader community. But we've always thought that the real danger is from a respiratory virus. I mean, we understand infections pretty quickly now. I mean, the plague used to be the, the terrible pathogen. Firstly, it's not a virus, it's a bacterium. And we worked out by the, the end of the 19th century, people have worked out this is caused by a bacterium that's transmitted by a flea that, that's on rats. So that sort of thing we, we understand very quickly. So we've always thought influenza was the main risk and we do get serial influenza pandemics. And of course, we had the terrible 1918-19 pandemic where at least 50 million people died worldwide. But now we're we hit with another respiratory infection and uh, just as infectious as influenza or maybe even a little more so. And uh, that was completely unpredictable. We always knew that there was chance we'd be hit with something came from completely out of left field and we wouldn't know about it until it hit us. But uh, the one thing I will say is that uh, the technology has improved massively even since 2002 when SARS hit. Um, we knew what this thing was pretty quickly. The Chinese got to it very quickly. They, you know, There was some initial confusion on the part of local authorities that behaved very stupidly. But apart from that, once it really got into the lab context, people sorted it out very fast. Now, I think they had their first cases around, I guess, November or something like that. They were putting out the sequence of the virus in January. And we're moving incredibly fast. I mean, with, uh, with AIDS, when it hit in 1981, it took about three or four years to actually find the virus. Uh, now we know that straight away and, and we're making uh, candidate vaccines within, within weeks, basically, of knowing what the sequence is. We certainly are in a better position in the 21st century. So, Peter, is there something we should do about future pandemics and is there something that Australia could do? I think there are two parts to that question, Andy. The first thing, I think globally what we need to do about uh, not going through this again with a future possible pandemic virus that's completely unknown, and that is we should copy what was done by an organisation called CEPI, which is an internationally funded group. I think it was largely funded, some government money, but a lot of philanthropic money from people like the Gates Foundation to develop vaccine strategies that could be used in the face of a novel pandemic. And that funded the research of Paul Young and his group at the University of Queensland who've developed the primary Australian COVID-19 vaccine candidate. What they developed was a platform technology called the protein clamp technology. And uh, when this new virus came along, they were just able to slot in those new virus genes and move down that road. So their vaccine, I think, is already 
has been in tests in ferrets in the Netherlands. And so we'll see whether that one goes into people pretty soon. I would think if it's given promising results, it probably will. So that's great that we had CEPI, but what we needed out there, and I, I sort of mentioned this a few times, but I didn't jump up and down and shout about it, was an equivalent organisation which was making antiviral drugs because a lot of these antiviral drugs will go right across a whole class of viruses. The anti-influenza drugs block both what we call the influenza A and influenza B viruses. And if we'd gone on pursuing antiviral drugs against SARS, the original SARS, antiviral drugs that affect its replication strategies, not so much the surface protein, then I think we might have already had drugs that would have worked against this one. So I think we need an equivalent of the CEPI organisation that's involved in developing drugs against all the major classes of virus that could be a potential threat to us. And some of those are the paramyxoviruses, the ones that cause uh, Hendra virus or Nipah virus, which have transmitted to humans and cause severe disease. Another class of drugs would be against the phyloviruses, the Ebola-type viruses. I'd include the noroviruses, like the ones that caused diarrhoea. I think we should have drug candidates in place that will counter any possible threat from the virus world. Bacteria aren't so much a problem for us because as their cells and separate cells, broad-spectrum antibiotics uh, tend to work against most of them. But viruses are specific to themselves. We need that group-specific therapy. So I think a drug development program for all the, uh, the potentially threatening viruses that we take these drugs through to at least a uh, through a phase one safety trial and uh, and through experimental animal tests. So that's one thing I think we should do. Specifically from the point of view of, of Australia, it worries me that we don't have a resource in Australia that could make enormous amounts of what we call GMP grade protein. This is protein, uh, and you think most of these vaccines would be proteins. And if we made monoclonal antibodies, but as, as things that can be used in place of drugs, uh, we don't have a f resource in this, this country which would allow us to make enormous amounts of those sorts of products. And I think we should think about putting that in place in Australia, have some sort of agency or facility that is able to make enormous amounts of these GMP-grade proteins. It could be used for other things in peacetime. It could be used to make uh, uh, therapeutics under licence or, or various other things. But I think we need to have that resource that makes us independent. What worries me in all this is if even when a successful vaccine is made, if it's a protein vaccine, are we going to be at the end of the supply chain? And uh, I think we don't want to be in that position. Professor, what would you like us to think about as we go to our phones and our devices to read about a COVID-19 story, just to update ourselves? What would you like us to have in the back of our minds? Uh, in the back of our minds, I, I think we need to think in terms of, you know, this has shown us what happens when humanity suddenly is faced with an enormous crisis. And uh, we've reacted well to it because human beings, I think, are programmed to react well to acute threats. I think that's what we've done through our whole evolution. There's an acute threat. We all come together. We all work together. Uh, we all do our utmost to solve the problem. And societies that are a bit more collectivist in some sense 
as many Asian societies are, for instance, and, and, and more accustomed to working together, in some cases have done rather better than this. I mean, the United States, that great bastion of freedom and individual liberty and everybody doing their own thing, uh, some of them don't even believe they should all be forced to drive on the same side of the road. You know, they've not done well with this at all. So it's taught us something there. Uh, the other thing is, I think, but this isn't the biggest threat facing humanity. This is something we'll be through in 12 to 18 months. The biggest threat facing humanity is clearly climate change. We all understand that if we've got any sense at all. And uh, yet we're, we, we're, we're almost paralysed when it comes to that. I, I think personally that what should come out of this is we, we need to rethink some of the ways we do things, some of the values we put on different things in society. Uh, Australia particularly needs to think, do, they re do we really want to be at the end of every supply chain in a globalised marketplace? I think that's not working all that well for us, though we've done well in the sense of responding. Uh, that's another thing that's uh, made me feel very good about Australia, is that I'd been worried that the, the more right-wing aspect of our politics was going too far down the American road. We're aping their, their, their love affair with uh, every individual should be able to do exactly what he or she wants. Uh, I think now we've, we've, uh, we've shown through the actions of the government that uh, basically we are capable of thinking in terms of the general good and acting accordingly. And I'm very, very, very uh, heartened by that and by the strong response uh, the present prime minister and the present government have made. I don't think if the opposition had been in place, it would have been any different, but it's great to see that side of politics really stepping up to the plate. Professor Peter Doherty, thank you for your insights and your inspiration. You're welcome. Thank you to Professor Peter Doherty, patron and namesake of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on April 22, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvia Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.